Reading this morning is another of Jesus' miracles, and we're reading from Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 18. While he, was in, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. And this is God's word. Thank you, Susie. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Great to have you here with us. I trust that as you came in this morning, you received one of... Well, uh, good morning, everybody, and again, great to, great to have you here with us. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're our guest, and it's a, a delight to have you here with us. We're currently in a series looking at the miracles of Jesus uh, this term as part of an overall year where we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Um, so this morning, we're looking at this passage from Matthew chapter 9, 18 to 26, where Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. This same account is also found in greater detail in both Mark and Luke's gospel. And so even though we're looking at Matthew this morning, on occasion when you see a black slide, I'll be adding in either segments from Mark or Luke that just fill out the story a little bit more and give us a bit more inside information to help us understand what's going on. In terms of the context of where this story is found in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew has um, spent several chapters from five to seven focusing on, I guess, the authority that Jesus had when he taught about the kingdom of God, um, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. And then the way Matthew organises his material is then chapters 8 and 9 are, in a sense, demonstrations, multiple demonstrations of the power of God. So we see the teaching and then the demonstration of the kingdom. And in Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, there are 10 miracles, specific miracles that Jesus does out of 20 in Matthew's entire gospel. And Matthew has 20 miracles, and out of all four gospels, there are 35. So uh, Matthew has quite a big focus on, on miracles in his gospel, and in these two chapters, we see 10 of those. Um, today, we see a really sharp contrast between two very different uh, but also very desperate individuals. We see that the first 
person is a synagogue ruler. Now, Matthew doesn't give him a name, but we learn from both Luke and Mark that this, this man is called Jairus. Uh, and so he is a man who is given a name, uh, unlike the woman with the flow of blood who is unnamed. Um, Jairus is a public figure. Uh, we're told he is a ruler in the synagogue, and back in this time, the synagogue was kind of the place where it was the center of both the civic and the religious life. Those two areas crossed over a lot more than they do today. So he was a person of great significance, as well as a person who held a prominent leadership position in the place of worship. Again, unlike Jairus, this woman is a very private figure. She has no public role to play, and even if she wanted to, she couldn't because A, she was a woman but B, she was considered unceremonially unclean or ceremonially unclean because of her um, ongoing menstrual problem um, that meant that she had extensive periods of bleeding um, that could have popped up at all kinds of times, uh, which excluded her from a place of public worship. So we see someone who is a leader in the culture and the society of the time and someone who is a complete outsider. We see somebody who is, in a sense, somebody and somebody who is an absolute nobody. Uh, There's this contrast as well that because of his position, uh, Jairus, the synagogue ruler, would have been a person of means, uh, unlike this poor woman who would be a person of absolutely no means. And we'll come to talk a little bit about that um, as we move along. But the one thing that they have in common is a desperate need for Jesus. (laughs) And that's where these two do find some commonality. So let's walk through the passage and see what we can learn today from God's Word. So Matthew 9, 18 to 19. I guess Matthew kind of breaks this story up. It's quite short and sharp into sort of really three scenes. Um, There's the scene where the the father, the pleading father, comes to Jesus, and that's what we're going to look at. Then there's set first, then there's the the scene with the woman, and then there's the final scene in the home of the father who has come to Jesus. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, And so did his disciples. You see, in Mark's gospel, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. There are two things that I want to point out in this first scene. And the first is the posture and the position of Jairus. Here is a person who has come to recognize who Jesus is. He is the one who can heal or who can, in fact, raise his daughter. He is no other, he's none other than God. And Jairus approaches Jesus in a position of both desperation but also worship as he bows before Jesus. I love this picture because you can sort of see something of that sense of both desperation but also hope as he looks into the eyes of Jesus. And he has faith that Jesus can, in fact, heal and raise his daughter from death What we also see here is a father, a loving father 
who is desperate for his daughter and for his daughter to know that she is loved and that she has value and that indeed she has life. That will become significant soon. Let's keep moving. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding, and sorry, just to go back to Jairus, what's also fascinating is that Jesus just goes with him. Like he obviously just acknowledges this man's worship and this man's faith. And, and Jesus' heart is filled with compassion and he goes. And so they begin the journey towards Jairus' home. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. In Luke's account, we see that as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So just think of this scene as Jesus and Jairus are heading towards his house. Jesus, particularly in Mark's account, we see that the crowds continue. By this point in Mark's gospel, the crowds are becoming so overwhelming that wherever Jesus goes, uh, they are pressing in on him. He's something of a, a, a modern-day sort of rock star celebrity where so many people want to see and be in on the action. And a woman, we get a little bit more information about the woman as well. The woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years... She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And yet this woman exercises tremendous faith. A little bit about this woman. We don't really know a lot about her. She doesn't have a name. But she does have a story. And again, we don't, we don't get to really hear the details of that story, but we can imagine she is the same age as Jairus' daughter. So, so the amount of time she's been suffering, 12 years, is the same age as his 12-year-old daughter. And that means that for 12 years she has been a social outcast. We don't know if, uh, if this woman ever had the opportunity to be married. Uh, it is possible that she could have been married, uh, but it is also possible that she could, could have been divorced. Um, for a woman to, because of her, because of the unusual flow of blood that this woman had, uh, she would not have been able to conceive and give birth to a child. So A, that may have mean, meant that she, she didn't have the opportunity to marry, or B, it could have meant that she did marry and had become divorced because barrenness was considered um, to be judged by God. And in fact, it was um, a man could divorce a woman because of barrenness. Um, and so we don't know, again, these are just sort of speculations, but to try and just get inside uh, the, the life of this woman and her desperation. She'd spent all that she had on, on doctors to try and rectify this problem, and the scriptures tell us that it only made matters worse. And yet here she comes, 
in a moment of total vulnerability, squeezing through the crowds, recognizing that every single time she rubbed shoulders with someone, or maybe she crawled to Jesus, we don't know, but she in fact made them ceremonially unclean and opened herself up to continual rejection and shame. And by touching Jesus, even the, the, the hem of his cloak or the tassel, she took the risk at making a religious leader or rabbi unclean, which was also a big no-no in that time. So she took a significant risk. But she was prepared to take that risk because she had faith. and She believed that Jesus could heal her. And her faith was rewarded because immediately as she touched the cloak of Jesus, the scriptures say that she was healed. And in this moment, Jesus turns around and sees her. And she is used to living her life behind the scenes and she touches Jesus from behind. Uh, She's used to being a social outcast. She's in a sense used to living in the metaphoric darkness. And in all of this commotion of the crowd, Jesus turns around and sees her. He looks at her. In a sense, he, for this moment in time, puts the spotlight on her, a very uncomfortable place for her to be, potentially heightening her her sense of shame, heightening um, the sense of rejection that she may receive because of the fact that she was unclean. And yet Jesus is about to do something incredible. Not only has he healed her physically, but he's also going to heal her socially. By giving her the opportunity to share her testimony of the last 12 years, he gives her a voice. (laughs) And again, that is something that she hasn't had in this society. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. She gives her testimony, and it's going to give glory to God (laughs) because she's only received the healing because of who Jesus is. Jesus tenderly refers to her as daughter. I was fascinated to learn this week that this is the only account in Scripture where Jesus refers to a woman as daughter. It's a beautiful term of endearment. And it should not be lost on the reader that on one hand we have a loving father desperate to see his actual daughter brought back to life. And now we see the father heart of God demonstrating love to this woman who spent the last 12 years in the darkness. He brings her into the light. He gives her a face. He gives her a name. He gives her a voice. It's a beautiful account. And what's also fascinating is this word healed. You see where the little asterisk is that I've put there in verse 22? Your faith has healed you. The word in the Greek is the word sozo. And that means saved. 
It's the exact same word that the angel speaks to Mary, referring to Jesus in chapter 121, where he says he will save people from their sins. So it would appear that this woman's faith has not only brought about her physical and her social healing, but more importantly, it has brought her salvation. This is the truth of the gospel, that our salvation comes through our faith in Jesus. This woman exercised great faith, and she is a model and an example to us today, and that's why she's recorded in the Scriptures. I'm reminded of this beautiful passage in Genesis 16, which is a favorite of mine, and it's the story of Hagar, where um, God has given the promise to Abram and Sarai that they will that Abram will be a father to many that he will be a father of generations and they're several years into this so-called promise and nothing has happened and so Abram and Sarai decide to take matters into their own hands and uh, and Sarai gives Abram the Egyptian slave that she has Hagar and says perhaps this is God's plan for us And Hagar does fall pregnant. And then during the pregnancy, Sarai, um, whose name will become Sarah, but not yet in chapter 16, she starts to despise her servant because she has received, she has become pregnant and therefore received God's favor and blessing. And uh, so much so, things become so hard for Hagar that she disappears into the wilderness. And she's sitting under a tree. And here she is, this Egyptian slave woman cast out another woman cast out into the darkness, vulnerable. And an angel appears to her and tells her what a blessing that she will will give birth to a son called Ishmael. And the story goes on. But then she refers to God as the God who sees me. And that's the name El Roy, the God who sees me. Uh, it's one of my, I just love that. Isn't it beautiful? You know, you think about um, each of us, we each have different things going on in our worlds, and sometimes we can feel as though, you know, surely God isn't that interested in me and the details of my life. He's got a whole world to think of. But the God you and I exercise our faith and trust in and follow is, in fact, the God who sees us he sees you he sees you in your most vulnerable moments he sees you when you are at your absolute lowest point he sees you in the darkness and he turns his face to you and calls you daughter or son and desires to draw you into his light where there is healing where there is acceptance and where there is salvation. It's beautiful, isn't it? The God who sees me. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. In Mark's account, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Some interesting things just to note in these passages, the, particularly the playing of pipes and the crowded room uh, would indicate that the period of mourning had been entered into, which would definitely uh, mean that the girl was in fact physically dead. And in, in this time, burials took place very quickly. There was only a 24-hour window for the burial to take place. And so the time of mourning um, kind of began immediately. And so Jesus actually enters into the scene where the mourning is well and truly taking place. And the burial preparations, no doubt, had already begun. And what this is what this is communic what the what the writer, what Matthew is wanting us to see here is that she was indeed physically dead. But Jesus, in a sense, isn't at all concerned about the fact that she is dead. Jesus refers to her as only sleeping. And men and women of God, this is the wonderful thing about the reality of life in Jesus, is that in Jesus, um, death is like sleep. We know we will wake up. (laughs) And when we go to bed each night... And we might set an alarm to wake ourselves up, or maybe we've got a child to wake us up, um, or maybe we'll just wake up early, or whenever our body wakes us up. But we, we're not concerned about whether we'll wake up or not, right? And this is, this is what it is to be part of the kingdom of God. This is how we're to view death. This is the attitude that Jesus has towards death, is he refers to it as sleep, because it's not permanent, and we know that it won't last forever. And this gives us great hope and great confidence when we come to that time and we face death or a loved one has faced death as difficult as that separation is in Jesus we know that we will rise again that they will rise again and we will see one another face to face this passage is all about faith and Matthew is particularly highlighting to us two individuals who exercised awesome faith in the moment of desperation Firstly, faith is like a gift. We can't take any credit for having faith. It is by the grace of God that you and I sit here today with the gift of faith. You can't earn faith. You can't work for faith. It is a gift in and of itself given to us by God. Faith, however, is like a muscle. And we can choose to exercise our faith. And as we exercise that faith, our faith grows you and I will both know of people who exercise their faith and it, in, it, it allows them to grow and take new challenges and take bigger steps with God. How do we exercise our faith? Well, in today's account, we see two people pleading with Jesus. We see in both the case of Jairus and the woman, there was a physical action that was involved. There was a risk that was involved. And sometimes faith is going to require us to take action and to take a risk. Uh, I know some people, for example, who have chosen to take an employment path that has meant perhaps some risk financially, but they believe that that is the better path for their faith. And God has honoured and blessed that path and so forth. You might be able to think of, of other examples 
It doesn't always work. It's not always a great story either. You know, it's interesting to think of Hebrews chapter 11, which is kind of the hall of fame and the hall of faith. And we do read about all those wonderful saints who did put their faith in God and God was able to deliver them and bless them and multiply. But there is also a list of nameless saints who were rejected, who were murdered, um, and who, who didn't have the happy ending, if you like. But at the end of the day, they still chose to exercise their faith in God. And the writer of the Hebrews said they will receive what is coming to them. They will receive the glory. They will receive the salvation that they longed for. So faith that is exercised grows. And in a sense, when we exercise our faith by putting our trust in God and taking a risk, we open the door to the power of God to work and to move. By exercising faith, both Jairus and the woman with the flow of blood opened the door so that the power of God through Jesus could work in their lives. Faith is trust exercised in the midst of hopelessness. Faith is trust exercised in the midst of hopelessness. Matthew is wanting to encourage his readers to have faith in God, to exercise the faith in God. Before Jesus, faith was a little bit like dial-up. You had to have the temple, you had to have a priest, and you had to have a sacrifice for that faith to be exercised and realized. But now, my friends, we sit on the other side of the new covenant and our faith in Jesus gives us direct access to God. Or, sorry, our access to God is direct through Jesus. We don't do anything, we don't see anything. You think about how many of us now use devices that just automatically connect to the internet. It's awesome. And I can't explain Wi-Fi. And I don't think many of us here can necessarily explain faith. So I'm not standing here today claiming to understand how faith works. And nor would I claim to understand how Wi-Fi works. I just know it does and I use it. And so the encouragement to us here today is to exercise our faith by using it. To trust that it works. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, just as the two individuals in today's story did, we can see that in that moment for both Jairus' daughter and Jairus and the woman, in that moment, as they exercised their faith, their faith in and through Christ was perfected because he's the pioneer of their faith and he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Shall we pray? Lord, today we just want to thank you for this beautiful account that we've read in Matthew, but also Mark and Luke's gospel, of these two individuals who are so different, and yet they were so similar in their desperation and the way they reached out to you in faith. And Jesus, we thank you that because of you and what you've accomplished in your death and resurrection as we celebrated earlier, we have direct access 
to God. And we have direct access to the power of God. So, Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to place our trust in you, particularly during those times of of helplessness and hopelessness, to learn to exercise our faith, even when it doesn't make sense, when it doesn't make logical sense. Help us to take those risks. Help us to trust in you. And as we do, Lord, would you grow our faith and would you continue to perfect our faith so that we might become more and more like Jesus, who you made each one of us to be like. We thank you for this time. And again, we thank you for your word that has spoken to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.